Hello and thanks for listening to episode 25 of Straight From The Hot Tap. This episode takes a slightly different direction to usual. We recorded it on the 11th of November, which in the UK is Remembrance Day. We discuss what it means to us, how it has changed over the years both actually and also in terms of our perspectives as we hit 40, and we revisit some history lessons. Overall, this is slightly more serious than previous episodes, but we enjoyed making it, so we hope you enjoy listening. If you do, please comment, like and share the podcast. It is particularly helpful if you can give us a star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't enjoy it, well then why not wander across no man's land instead, screaming down with Kaiser Wilhelm until the machine guns get you. I'm Matt. And I'm Blue. I'm John. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this is straight, straight from the hot center. Yo, yo, Matt Graham, you got in, man. You tried oh, and succeeded. I've spent the last 20 minutes trying to get in. What were you doing? It's involved... You did put your credit card number in, right? Yeah. <laughs> I got a fucking Google two-step verification, sending a message to Oh, no. Going through wall after wall of passwords. And I'm just like, all this just... To, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So stressed out today. Oh, yeah. Technology, man. It's been a shitty week, yeah. What's happened to you this week, Matt? Normally, you've got you know, a good account of you know, um, your week. I think it's just recognizing that I've had a year of rejection, a year where nothing went right. You learn all these lessons about, oh, in the future, I won't do this and I won't do that. But you're also just like, I'm tired of life testing me. Why can't I just be enjoying the reward? I just feel introspective, annoyed state. Are you, are you on the road, man? I'm in LA. I'm going to be in New York over Christmas. Matt, can I just interject here with perhaps some advice as I'm looking at Taunton Matters, which we'll probably come back to at some point later. There is someone called Trish Caller who works for JAO Groundworks Limited. Due to expansion, JAO are looking to employ a further six ground workers, ideally split into two gangs of three. We will also explore individuals if you're looking for a change. So, you know, wow. just putting it out there. There you go. You can go and be explored by Trish Callamat. Just like a reflection of just like what an unstable life this is. Anyway, it's all fine. Uh, yeah, it's been a shitty year, I have to be honest. Just like, fuck this year. Fuck 2021. Yeah, how about you guys? Yeah. Yeah. My, my week's been, how would I describe my week? It's been a bit groundhog day, if I'm honest. I'm still facing the daily challenge of trying to push shit up a wall basically that's not the right analogy is it no yeah hill maybe maybe push up a hill Hill. that was it yeah yeah that's the one yeah i'm now on the hunt for a swedish speaker prepared to work on very low pay on a fixed term six-month contract out of milk king should you be advertising this on the podcast man the swedish are notoriously low cost you know the exactly Swedes exactly are well known for liking to relocate to milton Keynes. i know <laughs> So that's causing me a few challenges, to be honest. And the performance management of my job continues. So, you know, all in all, not been a whole lot of fun. One of the things that I'm dealing with is that this constant immigration issue just drives me up the wall. Is it like pushing shit up a wall? It's like pushing shit up a wall. And I will have been here 20 years next July, if you discount the time that I've lived in other countries. And I'm still on a visa. And that's for a lot of really good reasons and good decisions that I made earlier on, namely not to get married for a green card. But it's like 
one of the problems is I've just hit all the fact that Art Trump has left a whole load of time bombs in the administration that make it more difficult now. Because I am who I am, in today's culture, right, you can never go, you know, what? I'm really stressed out about immigration or my visa or whatever, because whoever you're telling will either not understand and just not be interested because they've never had to, to go through it. Or even worse, they'll go, oh, yeah, you're white. It's easy for you. And without any basis in being endorsed by modern culture saying that, but without any experience in it yourself, right? Because there's a belief that if, if you're a white person, it's easy, but it's not easy. But you can't share that with anybody because it's politically incorrect. You could do it on a podcast, though. Yeah. You could do it on a podcast, so you can whinge all you like and just turn off the No, comments. no, no, totally. I can, you know, it's also politically incorrect for me to say I'm an immigrant. You have to say you're an expat if you're white. Is that what everyone says? Really? Yeah, you're not, that... If you say I'm an immigrant, they go, well, you're not, are you? Are you really? You're an expat. I guess from the perspective, you have a choice to some degree to go back again. You're not going to face persecution in North Curry, are you? After this podcast, you might face some persecution in Taunton. I might be like, <laughs> may not be safe as I cross the border, lynched by a group of angry Somerset locals. <laughs> yeah. The patrons of the Greyhound pub are already sort of like already sharpening, sharpening their, their Sharpening, sharpening their pitchforks. Sharpening, sharpening their, their plastic cutlery. pitchforks in mimicry <laughs> of the beautiful <laughs> agricultural culture that they took over <laughs> and destroyed. As they put on their mimicked farmer's clothes to go out for a drink. Yeah. <laughs> Cultural appropriation. You're from fucking Manchester, mate. You just moved here. You're not from Somerset. <laughs> You're not a fucking farmer. Like a plastic Tauntonian. You're a fucking white-collar worker who's claiming to retire at 35 with his shitty little kids down to Somerset. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You're about as fucking authentic as I don't know what. So, isn't there any space for you up north? Isn't that levelling up? Don't they need extra people in like Tristan de Cunha Island and stuff, St. Helena? So you can buy a house in like Sicily for a pound. Yeah, you can. You can buy stuff so cheaply. For in um, Sicily for a really pound? I had a interesting conversation with someone this week, yeah. by the way, that I wanted to share with you quickly, which is that I was following their Instagram. I'm not going to say who it is. And they were travelling loads like they're in mexico they're in france they're in all these places right so i spoke to them on the phone and they were like yeah i've been traveling loads i've been unemployed because of covid since may and i said to them how the hell do you get all this money to travel and stuff and they were like well i've spent my whole life programmed to buy a house because it'll bring me security and now i can't buy a house because i just don't have enough money to buy a house other than in somewhere I don't want to live, like West Virginia or something. So all that money's sitting in my account. And every time I see it, I'm so pressured by it. And I'm feeling like a loser because I haven't bought a house. So I just decided the other night, I'm just going to travel and blow through it. And I thought like, that's really interesting because that's really dumb. But at the same time, they're kind of onto something because the model of getting married, buying a house, doing all this kind of stuff that was so imprinted in people for so many decades is kind of slightly becoming unwound now in 2021 because the houses are so expensive. I'm not sure how it is over there, but the houses are so expensive here that 
you haven't got a hope of doing it unless you have a joint double income. Also, so many people are out of a job now that the whole model is starting to change. Buying houses is like a rich person game. It's a bit like as well, isn't it? It's a bit like the tying the, the carrot on a fishing rod in front of the donkey because the donkey's walking like mad to try and get the carrot and the carrot's constantly staying the same distance away from his face until eventually the donkey gives up and eats some grass instead or, or dies. If you imagine in the southeast, it's horrendous, but where I live, to get a deposit, you have to have 20% deposit on a house. So the cheapest house you can get in crew isn't so bad. It's like maybe 115 grand, something like that. That's a small house. That's like a one-bedroom flat or a, a small terrace house or something. So, well, 20% on that, nearly £30,000 or something. To save £30,000, I mean, how the hell do you save £30,000? You're on next to minimum wage. But this is the thing. I think people realise that it's pointless because by the time it takes you to save £30,000, the house prices have risen again. So it's now £40,000. Do you know what I mean? So you save another five years, and then it's not fifty thousand pounds. Like, yeah, that's crazy. what you're saying. So the gap is getting bigger and bigger. That is the wealth gap in this yeah. country, or in yeah, most yeah, of the yeah. Western world. And it's terrifying because it is true. You basically buying stuff like houses is the luxury of people, of very few people, basically, and fewer and fewer still. Our parents' generation were basically super lucky. They didn't realise it. Some of them, you could pick up a house for like twenty thousand, like a really nice house. I know, obviously, inflation, blah blah blah, but it's still relatively cheap and they've watched those properties double triple in value much more over the course of their lifetime we're never going to be in that position even if you are on the property ladder it's leveling out so much that you're not going to see that kind of level of return and it's pretty sad yeah if you're a kid now like trying to save up that kind of money good luck unless your parents help you out which is the only way for a lot of kids and obviously for, for most people that's not a an option the problem is is your parents helping you out it's the most realistic way that most people are going to get any type of security because the world of plenty that they lived in has been whittled away to the world of scarcity that we live in now. And it's a gap that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it will so continue to get bigger. This discussion I had with that friend of mine about houses really opened that to me because I've spent a few years looking for houses and seeing things getting more and more expensive. I mean, buying a house in California now, just forget it. Yeah, good luck. It's hugely expensive. Yeah. Buenos Dias, you know, good luck. Even to where my girlfriend lives out in the desert, even the land around there is being bought up. It's now four times the price that it was 10 years ago. For me, that whole model of getting on the property ladder and stuff, as they call it over there, that model is becoming obsolete now. We feel all this pressure to do that, but it's like you just said, Josh, I just don't realistically know. The only way it seems to me realistically that I'll be able to do it in that way is if I get a big financial win from one of these things that I'm endlessly trying to sell or, or whatever. It reminds me of kind of gold rush America in 1849, when all these people came from poor backgrounds around the world and tried to change their economic destiny. I know there's a lot of discussion about how we were going to talk about Remembrance Day today. It makes you think about that in a really interesting light because on Remembrance Day, officially we're remembering the sacrifice of all these people who fought in World War II, also World War One and the other wars, right? But really it's World War II now. And the interesting thing is that all of them pretty much, I'm going to make a general statement, fought so that their children could have a better life, basically, or people came after them could have a better life, right? I'm sure that that's how my granddad, who's a war hero, thought about their sacrifice. So I don't think any of them were doing it for like personal vanity or 
so that people would remember them as great heroes. I don't think any of them did that. I think that it was they had much more noble thoughts about the whole thing. I think that they fought so that the people that came after, be that their kids or whatever, could have a better life. And by and large, they succeeded. And we're remembering them so fondly because in the following decades of the 20th century, basically speaking, people really did have that better life. They came into a culture of much more equal wealth where there was a huge middle class and it was easy to get loans and mortgages and all this kind of, like by and large, their sacrifice really succeeded. What's happened in the first decades of the 20th century is that now all of that's become unwound at breakneck pace. In many ways, it started with the crash of 2008, which I read somewhere this week was described as the last hurrah of the middle class, at least in America. And so I think it's interesting that we decided to talk about Remembrance Day because I think that the very thing that I think you can credit the war generation for is now the very thing we're in danger of losing just as we're being told to remember them even more. Yeah, my take is that... If you look at history across centuries, you see these periods of expansionism and collaboration followed by nationalism, which then results in conflict. And then it goes back the other way again, doesn't it? It kind of goes in these cycles. It has done for hundreds of years. And we've left that period of collaboration. And if you like, peace is the wrong word because we are still in a peacetime, I guess. But we've gone from that one continent thing we're moving more towards a nationalistic way of seeing the world again aren't we and i think this goes not just for the uk i mean brexit's obviously a big denomination there but the general sentiment's true across europe that people are much more clamoring after their national identities which is exactly what started the first world war over 100 years ago that raises an interesting point because i and then touch on something matt say i i think I've got my own view on Remembrance Day and stuff. I think within the national conscience, Remembrance Day has seen a huge resurgence in the last 10, 20 years. And like, it certainly feels more important to me now as a 40-year-old man than it did as a 20-year-old as a teenager. And I think some of that's because of you know my age and my view on life and experience and seeing different things and being a dad and, and so on. But I think within the country, I think there is a bigger prominence of it. You see more people with with poppies, I mean, that's a crude indicator. You know, it's one indicator. I wonder how much of that is about paying homage and respect to to the dead from the world wars and also subsequent wars, and how much of it is also, as you say, just a real a sort of in, emboldened sense of nationalism and pride in the forces. I'm not saying any of these in, in a negative sense. I, I really feel that the two naturally do go hand in hand. I think that there's a danger with pride in the forces that it's hijacked by people who are naturally nationalistic in tendency. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that what happens in a post-war period is there's a huge redrawing national borders. There's a, a change in perception of nationhood a little bit yeah. you know, because you have the huge refugee communities, uh, huge poverty, huge destruction across continents. People are, go into rebuilding mode and are much more, if you like, intent on never repeating the past. Yeah, um, But then as that goes through another cycle of rebuilding and then economic prosperity and then economic decline, and then things like migration and refugees crossing borders and so on suddenly becomes a nationalistic issue. 
Whereas before it was seen as a, almost like a hangover from a terrible conflict. And I think we're in that phase now in Britain, certainly, and it's definitely true of Europe, where the refugee question has been raising its head now for some years. Brexit has really redrawn a border for Great Britain politically, as well as, I guess, in perception of us as a nation from outside. And as a result, we're very much in danger of fostering that sense of xenophobia and British exceptionalism. Right, absolutely. As we do that, so is the rest of Europe doing it. I actually I really agree with you. But to temper it slightly, I was reading an article just last week about how they did a big survey about sort of immigration and that sort of thing. And and the response across Europe, should I say, the response in, in the UK is, again, we've got to be a bit careful about things like Brexit, how the media would like us to perceive our own country as well as how obviously the rest of the world might perceive us. But the response to the immigration question in the UK was actually a lot more favourable than in any other country in Europe. And also they made this interesting point, which is true, whereby for all our faults and for all the fact that we voted for Brexit, etc., there is no political party, let alone even a small political party, i.e. there is no democratic place to represent your xenophobia and right-wing views in this country. There is no party that you can vote for. But in France, for example, as a good example, an old democracy, etc., etc., they have the Front National, which is extremely popular, and they have a new presidential candidate who is basically the top three, with obviously Macron trying to be re-elected, Marine Le Pen, and this other guy, I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head, but he... He's another very right-wing, anti-immigration guy, and he's the third most popular candidate to win the presidential election. So we should actually, in a way, be thankful because we don't have that kind of politics here, whereas other countries which are in some ways high on a sort of traditionally very functioning democratic level, and this is the same in Germany, Holland, other countries, there is a forum, a political, official political forum for that kind of sentiment to grow and to actually get voted for. I think in, in, in Germany and, and Holland and stuff, I think because there is more of an avenue for that, and it's naturally tempered by the fact that they are coalition builders and it's a proportional representation model. Here, I think voters, as an electorate, we do self-moderate. It's a very mature democracy we live in. So even now, the time we live in when supposedly we're going through a very extreme time in British politics, really, it's a centre-right and a centre-left options. Whereas in Germany and Holland, even if you get a 25% vote in the equivalent of the BNP or whatever it is, they will still be part of the mix, I think, which gives people more of a, almost a protest vote, I think. Yeah, it like further makes you think, how the hell did they get away with Brexit in a country where anti-immigration isn't part of the political spectrum like it is in France or whatever? It's so interesting. Whatever happened to the loathsome rat person nigel farage farage proof that actually cockroaches can breed with people let me give you a controversial opinion i, I think nigel farage is actually the best politician there's been in oh, the last few decades but i totally disagree with all of his views i completely reject all of his views and all of his politics but as a as an operator and as a political maneuverer he is the reason why we have left the european union he's extremely influential at mobilizing popular opinion. He is a shyster and a liar and a sort of a complete degenerate, but he is a very, very influential politician, even though he's never been elected as an MP. Yeah. No, I, 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 I think you're absolutely right, Johnny. And he's you absolutely big. share your view in that he's he's a loathsome individual. But similarly to Trump, what he was able to do is 
understand the voices of a disenfranchised and disgruntled, well, it, as it turns out, majority of people, and formulate a coherent, not only political strategy, but also voice for that group of people. So people used to say regularly that he's the person that says all the things that everybody else is too frightened to say. And in so doing, became this sort of voice of truth when everybody was starting to doubt the sources of news, the origin of various stories and the motivations behind other politicians. Farage was able to capture all of that frustration and that irritation with the system, if you like, and turn it into a clear and concise message to take something to the electorate. And it's appalling. I mean, it's super manipulative, yeah. that kind of language. Yeah. When oh, yeah. people say, I'm just going to say what everyone else is too frightened to say. I would never say those things. Like what they're actually saying is, we're going to say the stuff that really nationalistic people are too frightened to say. No, everyone isn't trying to say this. You, you are trying to say it. You know what I mean? Most people have moderate attitudes to everything. He is exactly like Trump in that respect. He ended up going over and, and speaking yeah, at a, Trump rallies, didn't he? a joint rally together in Alabama, that bastion of civil rights through the ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can pay £65 or something like that to get a video message from Nigel Farage. Really? <laughs> yeah. Guys, and I'm he... so sorry, but I think that has become <laughs> episode 27 of this podcast. Yeah, a Farage shout out. Let's a get Farage, Farage to give a us personal message. message. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I can't think Farage. of a better thing beyond New Year's message <laughs> from Nigel Farage. Can we not just <laughs> get him as a guest on the show? No, we're probably doing I think he needs to have a message to the people of Taunton somehow. Yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> I think the very last thing Taunton needs is a message from Farage. Yeah. Hopefully we can get him to commit suicide live on the air. <laughs> oh my god. I think he already had the misfortune of escaping death in a plane crash. Maybe we should finish the job. <laughs> There's a segment in, in the most recent podcast I posted that I'd forgotten about because it's quite a long time ago when we recorded it. was the idea of the gang jumping in ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe we could <laughs> invite Nigel Farage. For an East LA style <laughs> jumping in. Exactly. <laughs> Offer him a, a large sum of money to appear in Vivery Park on on his own soapbox with an audience of people all clamouring to hear his views on State of the World and everything in it. And then it just ends up turning into a massive gang jumping in ceremony with the entirety of Taunton given 60 seconds to do their worst yeah. on Nigel Farage. Going back to the original point, just to sort of set the scene. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Remembrance Day, not obviously it is Remembrance Day when we're recording, which is obviously convenient, but that wasn't the original intention. It was because I've been listening over the last few weeks to a podcast from a guy called Dan Carlin, and it's called Hardcore Histories. Well worth listening to. And I'm going to be honest here, right? My knowledge of the First World War was pretty limited. Did a little bit at school, followed it a little bit in my own interest and so on. When I listened to this podcast, I couldn't believe how bad the First World War was. Some of the stories of the conflicts, of the incidents, of the conditions the troops lived in and so on are just so unspeakably horrific that it kind of got me thinking because it's so at odds with the way Remembrance Day has turned into, this might sound a little bit controversial, but it's almost been Disneyfied. No exaggeration, it seems like every year there's like a one-upmanship to see who can remember in the most over-the-top, contrived and commercial way. It's not going to be long before the entirety of the UK is just covered in an enormous blanket made of 
poppies that are sown by the hands of Syrian immigrants or something. It's just got so ridiculous. And I was thinking, I remember at school finding the Remembrance Day thing extremely moving. I remember going into school, putting my CCF uniform on. Matt, you probably weren't there for this. Polishing my boots, polishing the signal on my beret, and trooping with several others down to the, the memorial in the science labs where there was carved in stone on the wall the list of old Tontonians who were killed in the First World War and no doubt subsequent conflicts since then. And I always remember coming away from it feeling really moved and touched by the solemnity of it and the idea of remembrance of people who had lost their lives, often not much older than we were at the time. And I think that message of loss, of grief, of sacrifice, of horror has been totally lost in this pursuit of trying to almost glorify victory and commemorate conflicts in a really over-the-top way. I just think that needs to be wound back a little bit and a bit more focus needs to be made on the true reality of what the troops faced in these conflicts. And this doesn't just First World War, this is every conflict from then and since. For me, it's like, you know how you were saying how you weren't aware of the reality and your history was... I mean, what I find so interesting is that generally, when you look at all of these conflicts, but if you look at World War II and World War I in particular, the people involved, all of them thought that they were fighting for a better world, almost unequivocally. I don't think that they really saw it other than on the other side as nationalistic in overtones. I generally believe mm. that they thought they were fighting for a way of life, right? And for a quality of life for people. And that's why how we originally started talking about house prices going out of control. It kind of brings it all back for me because these were transnational conflicts, right? These were groups of people fighting groups of people for visions of the future. And a really good example of that is something that nobody knows, or hardly any in England, is the contribution to the Polish community during World War II. So we tend to look at the Battle of Britain in England as this poster for the sacrifice of people during World War II, right? Holding off the German Air Force and making sure that the Germans couldn't invade England and this really tense three months, you know, never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few, all this stuff, right? But one a really interesting story that no one knows about the Battle of Britain is that a crucial component of the Royal Air Force at the time were all Polish. The Polish yeah, yeah. Air Force that had escaped Poland they were all resettled in England in the first stage of World War II. They were all highly trained pilots and they all were an integral part of the Battle of Britain. And they spoke Polish over the radio waves while they were fighting. In the early years after the end of World War II, the Polish community were really celebrated in, in England, right? They had their own church in West London and all of this stuff. In North Holt, isn't it? It's the Polish War Memorial. In today's more nationalistic Remembrance Day, the Polish contribution to World War II has been forgotten because they don't fit that narrative. Yeah. And I feel for me, it's a betrayal of the narrative. They weren't fighting for England or Britain or whatever. They were fighting for a better future. We all have World War I and II veterans in our families. I firmly believe that. I think that narrative is coming back around. I think people, obviously, especially with recent events, people are kind of, there's a much, much greater interest in hearing those stories again and celebrating them. Going back to what Matt B was saying earlier on, one thing that I just think everyone should watch, and I think it should be like shown to kids if they want to sort of understand about like the First World War. It was I don't know if you guys have seen it, but honestly, is it The Wire? It's <laughs> 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 it's, it's called a lot of 
A lot of parallels there. Yeah, so many parallels. Um, It's called They Shall Not Grow Old by Peter Jackson. And he's basically taken real footage from First World War and painstakingly... It's it's turned it from black and white into colour and used um, lip readers to try and figure out what the soldiers and what people were saying and then adding actors' voices to it. So basically it creates this extremely authentic picture. And it's honestly, and also it's just harrowing. But I have to say, I don't, don't know, at least at the beginning, whether those soldiers actually were doing it from an idealistic standpoint for a better life. I honestly think it was almost like this kind yeah. of, guys, you've got to come fight a war. Okay, then where do we sign? And they, they thought they'd be back home in a few months kind of thing. And then it obviously became this four-year nightmare. And probably by fewer being enlisted in... 1917 you probably thought okay yeah this is going to be a complete disaster if you were joining up in 1914 you probably just thought you know jolly good we'll head over to france be back before christmas you know beat beat the germans and back before christmas but going back to matt matt your point matt Beatty, about the way that remembrance day has been kind of almost glad not glamorized but yeah what you were saying sort of disnified i actually think that the wider question there is and the whole remembrance thing is completely a part of it is one example of it should i say but i actually just think that is how media functions now yeah, if you yeah, if you yeah, start yeah, to yeah. think about any yeah. like even the highlights of a sports match going to something really banal the amount of drama and the edits they can use the music the build up to a sports match and they'll take individual stories and they'll put the emotive music on in the background and you're for a world cup or just for, you know, and that's just in sports. Then you take that and bring it into the real world with these kind of highly emotive stories of life and death. It's the media saccharin machine. It's how they work. We're actually, it's like we're witnessing the evolution of media and it just happens to apply as well to remembrance. You know, it's really interesting, Josh. Actually, what you were saying about people should watch, they shall not grow old. Another thing you could do is you could have a mandatory addition to the school curriculum where every child has to sit in an IMAX for 24 hours watching 1917 on loop. Oh, God. And then when they're deafened and in a state of hypnosis, they get pulled out of the cinema and they have to be jumped in by a group of really (laughs) angry 40-year-old men who just repeat the phrase, you don't know how lucky you are over and over again. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Joking aside, though, like... No, the, the thing that's really, really struck me. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's really got in my head since I started to really try and understand the First World War a bit more is exactly what you were saying, Josh. That yes, I think there was a general sense of nationalism. There was also the mass mobilization based on a whole lot of propaganda bullshit that got people to go and sign up and, and go into conflict. So you know you can argue the rights and wrongs of warfare. The fact is is that you know once it started it was hard then to stop it. I think what I found absolutely frustrating looking at the way Remembrance Day is celebrated currently is it very much looks at British troops, British contributions to wars as sort of plucky Tommy taking on Johnny Foreigner and winning. And it kind of implies that guys that went and fought in these wars were heroic, highly trained and resilient people. And it completely ignores and airbrushes over the reality of what actually went on. So when you're looking at remembrance, I don't look at it now in terms of remembering war dead and fighting for our futures and things. I look at it in terms of what our generations had to go through in order to 
preserve our freedom. And what they had to go through is unimaginable. And we don't tell that story enough. I mean, to give you an example, in Dan Carlin's podcast, there's an episode about Passchendaele. So Passchendaele was a horrendous battle that was dominated by mud. So the weather was horrendous. The makeup of the soil at Passchendaele was very clayey, which meant that it was it became very wet very quickly. And there was a passage they talked about where they had to cross shell holes with basically planks of wood across these shell holes. And in these shell holes, they were full of water and obviously dead bodies and all kinds. And they were crossing an area to get to, to one of the trenches. And one of these soldiers fell into one of these shell holes and basically sunk in the mud up to his chest. And they couldn't get him out for love nor money. Anyway, they went off to do that thing, came back. This guy, 48 hours, was still there, up to his neck in mud, basically, unable to escape, and nobody could get him out of the mud. By this stage, start raving mad, begging to be shot by his own troops mm. because he was just going to die eventually of, of exposure or, or drowning, you know. And this was a 20-year-old person that had never been to France, had probably lived in a village in Derbyshire somewhere, working on a farm or something, and then he finds himself in this unimaginable situation. And, and we, these sort of stories are so human and so horrific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet we somehow gloss over that and we don't focus on that as a lesson. And for me, Remembrance Day should be a lesson. And it should be a, it should, yeah. it should be a reminder that war is the most horrific thing that anyone can go through. Can I give a counterpoint? I'm not disagreeing with what you say, because I, I also find those personal stories and examples and Hollywood productions and uh, you know some of them at least really visceral and powerful but the thing that i think that the remembrance movement has got right and is ever present and will never change is the way that it does respect and pay memorial to the unknown soldier and and the whole ceremony of the tomb of the unknown soldier in westminster abbey and the cenotaph and what it represents for me it's the converse of of the very specific stories i personally find that very powerful because it, it represents everything else that you can't just pinpoint it represents i don't know if i'm alone on this but it it represents a sort of beacon of hope for everyone's ultimate fear not not just of dying dying in a way that no one ever knows and you're just gone and washed away and your body's gone and it's completely nihilistic and black. I find that in terms of like, you know, a personal moment to reflect, I find that super powerful and that, and that can't be appropriated by anyone and so I, moving, it goes deep it? into the public conscience, I think, particularly if you, know, you see the public reaction to graffiti on the cenotaph or someone that protesting a daddy on top of it. This is totally sacrosanct stuff because it represents eternity. It represents all of the sacrifice. There's no end on and beginning on that. Yeah, it's completely yeah. you know, really it's just loss. Yeah. 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 And really, I couldn't agree yeah. more, Johnny. I, just to go from what you guys were, were saying, I do remember when I was at school finding the whole thing much more moving than I do now. Maybe it's because I just suspect that it's been co-opted for nationalism and whatever. But there's something about it that makes me think my granddad was in D-Day and he definitely escaped death by a very narrow margin. And it really ruins my thinking about that if I think that he was doing it because he thought he'd be remembered. You know, it really makes me uncomfortable if he thought he was going through that sacrifice because he thought he was such a big deal. And no matter what the political ramifications of it, I genuinely think that what that generation did achieve, because it's what they set out to achieve, is a world that was easier for everybody living in it. And that was basically achieved in the last decades of the last century because we were in an age of unprecedented distribution of wealth. You could buy a house easily. Out of interest. You could have a good life. Out of interest, Josh and Johnny, you're both from military families, essentially, aren't you? How was it different, or I suppose you wouldn't know if it was different or not, but having a father who served in the military in some capacity, was Remembrance Day dealt with in a different way to perhaps 
other households, do you think? Was it more of a poignant thing or how was it dealt with? I'll leave it to Johnny to make the main points because, I mean, by the time I was, when my dad was in the military for 20 years, by the time I was around, he wasn't anymore. Whereas obviously Johnny's father was there all the way through. So for that reason, I don't think it was, it wasn't really, to be honest, it, I think not really, not really. I think uh, it was certainly marked and it was certainly important. I think my parents are pretty non like church going and all that kind of stuff. So my memories of Remembrance Day are really based around school, actually, and chapel at school. It was certainly taken very seriously and at home, not marked in any particular way. Yeah. Similar for me, Josh, it was like, there was obviously recognition, but it was kind of no more than any other member of the public, I would have thought. I think that's because dad was, he was a traditionalist in terms of service and duty in the the Royal Navy. He was fairly laid back. So I think he just saw the whole being in the military as part of his vocation. It was 365 days a year. And that was always the thing. You didn't need a big crescendo up to one day of the year. You attended services and stuff. You know, it's just a a constant thing rather than a, a big one moment. My grandparents took it very seriously. They were, they? Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, very much. So granddad served in the RAF, mainly as a national service, I think. But yeah, they used to talk a lot about watching the Battle of Britain over the Isle of Wight and my granddad's house was bombed out in the war. And yeah, they got some real lived experience of conflict and obviously saw people killed and people not coming back from the battlefields and so on. And yeah, so on Remembrance Day, they would always dress up in their best clothes and they'd go to church and they, they used to keep every poppy they ever bought that they were displayed around the house and my granddad had this flagpole and he was so proud of it this this massive great flagpole in his garden that he constructed and he always used to put different flags up depending on what was going on in the world and yeah he he always used to that's cool the the union jack at half mast on remembrance day it was a big deal for them you know they were genuinely remembering people who had had gone off to war and didn't come back the battle of britain is such an amazing story it is such a, a triumph of technology at that time to be able to coordinate all the listening posts and the radio stations and dispatch aircraft and the Royal Air Force so outnumbered. This goes against what we're talking about, really. I heard of quite a convincing discussion the other day about whether the Battle of Britain was actually critical in the course of the Second World War or not, because it's always considered to be pivotal moment. This theory posited that even if the RAF hadn't defended so stoically and literally just not folded whatsoever, that the Germans wouldn't have even been able to get across the channel because they didn't have proper landing craft and they didn't have the right numbers of troops and, and all this sort of stuff. But it, have but you it heard gave us the air, su- air superiority though, didn't it? Which was pretty key, whether they had the ability oh, yeah, or not totally, to land. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the air superiority after that was, yeah. we ruled the air. It also totally meant that, yeah, the Western Front was there to be reinitiated in 19... When was D-Day? 44? 44. 44? June 44. Yeah. Sorry, just to say... I, 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 I shut this... that theory down, Josh. No, 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 no. I just <laughs> It was a kind of a side, but linked to that. But Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding was the guy who kind of masterminded the Battle of Britain. And he was this really sort of unassuming man who Churchill really did not like at all. And he had a sort of, I suppose, sort of limited... He was celebrated in a sort of limited way slightly, even despite this huge achievement. And after the war, he became this kind of spiritual writer. And it's sort of, it's quite an interesting life. He's quite an interesting man. This guy, he's sort of not, perhaps not celebrated as much as he should be. He was, from what I understand of it, he he's like marshalling of the RAF was an absolute masterclass. He was like the most amazing organiser and there was no real bravado. He was quite a sort of mild-mannered guy, wasn't he? Yeah. And he just was like super organised, just set it all up dispatch dispatch 
Amazing. Amazing story. Do you know what's terrifying about D-Day and the advance into France after the landings were successful? The whole thing nearly came unstuck by something really, really stupid, which was the drainage ditches across Normandy. Some guy with a lime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah some guy with a big bucket of frozen lime. <laughs> so the, the last stand and, and, of the Nazis was dropping, just... A- <laughs> Montgomery yeah. just nailed him yeah. with a frozen lime. Air-dropping <laughs> bags of weed into the opposition. Just <laughs> <laughs> so baked by the time it came around to fighting. Across the whole of Normandy, because obviously it's very flat, there runs these drainage ditches that... Come on, have, you can do better um, than that. What's, what's the French for drainage ditch? Bocage is what they call it, the Bocage. Bocage. And it was it was deeper than people realised. So all the photos they took over in Normandy to try and do the recce of the terrain and so on, they didn't appreciate that these ditches were actually quite big and the trees in them were actually quite dense. What happens the troops kept getting stuck and the tanks couldn't get across these ditches. They were too wide. So the whole thing nearly came unstuck because the, the troops literally got stuck in these ditches and they got so paranoid because they couldn't see out properly. They ended up sh- basically shooting at each other the whole time. And it would cause real problems. In the end, the Royal Engineers, Johnny, big shout out to the engineers, did a massive job in keeping the uh, the army moving forward because otherwise they were in real danger of getting completely stuck and bogged down, which was obviously buying the Germans time to reinforce. So amazing how basic details can cause all kinds of problems. It is interesting to talk about it all, I think. It is, it's like, it is a really interesting subject, I think. Guys, though, honestly, if you listen to these podcasts, fucking crazy. They're like four hours each. They are mega, mega long and detailed. And it's been a real investment of time. What's it called? It's called yeah. Hardcore Histories. Okay, all right. Okay. Hardcore Histories. Remembrance Day is, I know it, it's focused due to the sort of epic nature of those wars, to the First and Second World War. One of the reasons why it is still really relevant, we've lived a charmed life dicking about getting drunk in pubs and stuff. Whereas guys of our... Speak yourself. <laughs> whatever. Uh, guys of our exact age... And okay, yeah, not in the same numbers as Second World War, but guys of our age have been through some pretty horrific things. And we know some of them. They've seen and, and done things which on a par with certain things that happened in the other wars. But obviously, what I'm saying is that it's no less relevant, even though those big wars are long gone. This is quite recent history and guys our age have been through it. So I think that's, it's, that's why it's still relevant and, and important. Have you guys actually been to the battlefields, either First or Second World yeah. War battlefields? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say again, it's yeah, really yeah. worth doing. Yeah, yeah massively. Yeah, there's this place in in San Malo actually. You know, I love San Malo, but there's this place there that I find really, really <laughs> real. You get the ferry uh, from Dover to Bendover. <laughs> <to Bendeville. laughs> it's a mountain in Scotland. Yeah, but there's this. Uh, <laughs> so in Samalo, this is, it's quite hard to find it but it's right in the middle of the walled city in Entremios and it's a sort of little garden and so there's a wall there with a plaque on it the plaque it talks about how the Germans used to use this spot to execute the town's civilians so if there was a resistance attack for some reason you know, the resistance blow up telephone lines or cause some havoc of some sort then they used to round up 10 random citizens men from the town and shoot them in this square there's still the bullet holes in the granite where these guys were lined up and shot seeing the bullet holes in the wall where just innocent people were just lined up and shot i find really moving and really real those Horrible. are the things that really make you think yeah I saw Schindler's List for the first time last week. I've never seen it, even though oh, it's wow. like it's over like twenty five years old. I have, to, and, I have uh, to admit, as well, with a bit of shame, I've never seen it either. After I you finish the wire, it. Josh, put it on. Yeah, you know, just uh, watch <laughs> so the wire things first. on my watch list. <laughs> Indeed, it's strong stuff. And I found it very hard to stop thinking about it afterwards. Yeah, me too. Me too, man. And the thing is, as well, like even though that's a generation ago, 
and there's probably no living survivors of, or maybe you know, a handful of living survivors left. In the sort of absolute terms of history, that's still only 80 years ago. That sort of stuff is only a couple of generations ago. Guys, the, if this you, shit could have got so out of control. It did get so fucking out of control. I mean, sorry, yeah. So freaking out of control and people got whipped up into such a years and years of the Nazi party growing into what it became in the war. But it was like, that shit escalated fast. I went with my dad actually on a couple of years ago because he was, was in London and he wanted to go. We went to the Imperial War Museum and there's a whole section on the Holocaust and oh my God, you come out of there and you, there's so much information and footage and pictures and you come out of there and it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. It's almost, again, it's one of those things, it's almost necessary to see that for these, the same reason, remembrance and reminder and like learning and oh my God, very moving. And again, that's come back to, to my original point about Remembrance Day being about, it's a necessary thing to go through every year to talk about what happens when people make bad decisions when politicians become yeah. too powerful when extremists are not stopped yeah. it's a necessary yeah. thing to talk about and it gets lost sometimes in this sort of right wing left wing pacifist versus nationalist thing you just have to exactly as you say Josh remember that it wasn't that long ago that people were packed onto trains and, and sent yeah. off to it's a to lesson for all, for all time the other benefit not benefit of it I don't mean that but in terms of as a sort of tool of learning for the future is the fact there is visual footage of it Yes, it was visual footage from the 1940s and visual footage of the First World War from 1914 to 1980, but that makes things hit home so much because you can't argue with that. That is on camera yeah, totally. and that happened and and you should fucking look at it and realise, yeah. Totally. I remember reading something, talk about how the banality of it all as well. One of the crazy things that Germany had to face post-war was obviously the demobilisation of the forces and a lot of the high-ranking Nazis would go back to normal life. You know, they go work in banks and yeah. so a lot of them were Nazis as well, places. worth remembering. I mean, a lot of them were just Germans, you know. Civil servants. Yeah. Right, but there were a lot of a lot of them were covered up by the state as well. There's this incident that I read about a little while ago. It's just so disturbing. So there's this guy who was in Auschwitz or a concentration camp or something and working as a capo. You know what that is, don't you? The capos were Jewish inmates who were responsible for putting people into the gas chambers, removing bodies, removing the teeth from the bodies. I mean, it's crazy shit. And then they were generally killed after a period of time as well. But some obviously survived around the time of the liberation. The psychological trauma for these guys was horrific. They were architects in the Holocaust in their own way. Anyway, there's this guy that survived, was liberated. And then after a long period of time being rehabilitated by the Red Cross and so on, went to Israel, but never really settled and eventually found his way back to Germany. And I think it was in Hamburg or something like this. Anyway, some years after the end of the war, in a fun fair in Hamburg, he bumped into one of the camp commandants. This guy recognised him and said something along the lines of, Crikey, how are you still alive? Or something like that. One of the, the Nazis. Nazis who, yeah, with the yeah. Nazi who was like in charge of the camp. Bumped into him at this fun fair. So this guy that had survived the Holocaust, this Jewish guy, Christ, how the hell did you survive? Or something like that. I made a joke of it. And then just sort of melted back into the crowd and left this guy with the most horrendous trauma. And he, of course, he tried to raise the alarm and nobody really took it seriously or really believed him and in the end he killed himself because he couldn't deal with the trauma and having spent a decade near his damn it trying to recover from the experience then bumps into somebody that just gone back to normal life this guy was just a normal person outside of that environment it's crazy but that, that's what germany did because like, like the nuremberg trials went on and i know that was like the top officials of the nazi party and that was like a year or so but then there was continual trials and public trials and stuff and and then whoever the chancellor was at that point they just drew a line under it didn't they yeah yeah that's enough enough yeah 
And they just said, look, enough trials, enough still remaining open cases, and it's a clean slate. And God, as a political decision, that must have taken some balls. But you look back on it, you think you see Germany now for what it is, and and you would never know that those sort of atrocities and that Nazification of Germany permeated so deep into society. And probably that decision was key in doing that. There's a great film actually on that exact note called Labyrinth of Lies. It's a German language film, so it's in German, so you have to watch it in subtitles unless you can speak German. Is it the one with David That's Bowie? a really, really interesting film about exactly that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, some questionable musical numbers. About exactly that, a prosecutor that uncovers some evidence of cover-up and hiding of high-ranking Nazis in German establishment and so on. He finds exactly that, that there's no appetite at all to, to go yeah. through and do it. It's a brilliant film. It's really worth watching. Labyrinth of Lies. Yeah, it's really good. I found it really interesting to watch. Because you don't often see things from the German perspective, you see. So seeing it being dealt with in a quite a sensitive way by Germans themselves is really interesting. Well, that takes us to the end of a slightly unusual episode. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is dedicated to those ex-school and current friends who have been to war, seen some terrible things, and dedicated all or part of their lives to protecting the country. War is hell on every level, and those who put themselves through it, whatever their reasons, deserve our respect and thanks. This was Straight From The Hot Tower.